The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This morning, as we continue our study in Mark, we see Jesus returning to his hometown. We will simply work through these six verses together this morning. And then, after we've worked through the six verses together, we're going to see three applications from this text for our lives. And I'm going to give them to you now so you know where we're headed and what's coming. Three applications from this text of Jesus' return to his hometown. The first is the warning for ourselves and our children. The second is that the normal response is rejection. And the third is that the sin of unbelief is the most serious. The warning for ourselves and our children, the normal response is rejection, and the sin of unbelief is most serious. Let's work through this text together, starting in verse 1. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Mark tells us Jesus leaves from there. The there is Capernaum. He's leaving Capernaum where he's been doing ministry, many works, many miracles, traveled across the Sea of Galilee, uh, healed a, a, a demoniac, came back across the Sea of Galilee, uh, raised the dead girl to life, healed a, a woman of a chronic illness. And now he is leaving from there and he is going to his hometown. And Mark doesn't tell us here in in chapter 6 what his hometown is, but but we already know that his hometown is that of Nazareth. So Jesus leaves Capernaum and heads to Nazareth. Nazareth is um, a small town. Most believe that it was approximately uh, 500 people in population. So a little, small town. And if you grew up in a small town, you, you know how a small town is. Everybody knows everybody in a small town. Um, this is the town where Jesus was raised. He was born in Bethlehem. 
He did spend a short time in Egypt, but he was raised in Nazareth. This is his hometown, and being his hometown, he knew everybody, and everybody knew him. And Jesus comes here, he arrives here after starting his ministry, and Mark tells us that he came with his disciples. His disciples followed him. Now, it's hard sometimes to know what um, Mark means and who Mark includes when he uses this phrase, his disciples. It, it is basically always, from this point at least, um, at least his 12 disciples. But it could be more than the 12. Because remember, there are great crowds of people following Jesus. When Jesus sailed across the, the Sea of Galilee, he was in the boat with his 12, but there were you know, many other boats full of people who were following him who would have been called disciples as well. So we don't, we don't know how many are with him, but it's at least 12. It could be more that are with Jesus as he comes back into his, his hometown. And Jesus, when he gets there, he does what is common for, for him. Mark tells us, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? So get the picture here. Jesus, the the regular, nobody, just like everybody else, seemingly kid that you watched grow up. Has, has left, and you've heard reports of all of these miraculous things that are happening, and here he shows back up in town, and he's followed by a whole bunch of people who are following him, and he begins to teach in the synagogue. And Mark tells us that those who heard him were astonished. Now, when we read this word astonished, I don't know about you, but for me, when I read the word astonished, I think of it in terms of uh, the positive, right? Like, whoa, that's amazing. I'm astonished by this. But that is not how uh, Mark is, is using it here. I think instead of understanding this astonishment of Jesus' teaching as adorning amazement, we can think of it in terms of a contempt confusion. They couldn't make sense of what Jesus was saying, how he was saying it, why he was saying it. It just was not computing for them. They were confused by him. We know this Because of the questions that they ask, right? Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, those are are, are seemingly fine questions. 
But they're all questions that go to one central issue that they're struggling with and they're confused with. And that is, what is the source of all this? What is the source of Jesus's wisdom and power? That's their question, right? Where does he get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How is he doing these things? All questions around the source of Jesus' teaching and power. Now, they had already heard of all that Jesus was doing. There is no doubt in my mind that they had heard of all that Jesus was doing before Jesus got to Nazareth. Because we know that his family had already heard and they had already come to try to get him and bring him back home because they thought he was out of his mind. It's already been made clear that the word of Jesus has spread all throughout the region to where people from all over were coming to him. So they've been hearing all that Jesus has been doing in these mighty works. And here Jesus shows back up with these disciples and he begins to teach in the synagogue. And they just don't understand how this Jesus that they knew that they had seen grow up could be doing this. Because that's the next questions they ask. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are his sisters not here with us? Their response to Jesus is one that says, we know who you are, Jesus. You're just the carpenter. Where is this coming from? How are you able to do these things? Where is this wisdom? Where is this teaching coming from? And they ask these questions. Now, there absolutely is some subtle slander to their questioning. They're slandering Jesus here. When they ask, is this not the son of Mary. Because Jewish tradition, as a Jew, you're always identified as your father. As your father. Even if your father is deceased. So it's not even that, that Joseph is, is passed away at this point and, and only Mary is alive, so is this not the son of Mary? No, I mean, if the dad was dead, it still is this not the son of, of Joseph. It probably is the case, because this is a small town, that there are still rumors and questions surrounding his birth. Because Mary and Joseph were not married. This is subtle slander. Is he not the son of Mary? Is he not the son of Mary? Is this not the son of Mary? What they mean by that is that because he is the son of Mary, he cannot be the son of David. Now, I don't think it's a jump 
to make that assumption by what they're meaning. And I'm going to tell you why. Because we can't assume that Jesus is teaching in, on this day in this synagogue that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. That he is the promised son of David. Because the practice in a synagogue in Jesus' day would be for whoever was teaching that day to stand and to read an Old Testament passage and then expound upon it. And we have a record of Jesus doing exactly that in his hometown of Nazareth. Now, Mark doesn't tell us here exactly what Jesus teaches this day in this synagogue. But Luke does tell us what Jesus, is, Jesus teaches in the synagogue at Nazareth. Now, this is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 24. And there are um, a good, there's a good bit of dispute as to is what Luke records in Luke 4 the same event that Mark records in Mark 6? Or are these different events taking place at different times? Now, I don't have a... A, I don't know that it necessarily matters. And B, I don't have a real hard opinion one way or the other. If, if somebody said, well, Jason, which way are you leaning? I'm going to lean that these are separate events. And that Luke 4 happens before Mark 6. Um, but this is what Luke tells us in, in Mark 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he going to say about this text? And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. So Jesus teaches in the synagogue. And what does Jesus teach? Jesus teaches that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. That he is the promised Messiah. And their question even then is, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, come on, Jesus. 
And, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, say, you're, you're going to ask me to do here, to prove it, to do here what I did there. That's what you're going to do. But I already know your hearts, already know your unbelief, and a prophet's without honor in his own hometown. By the end of this account in Mark 4, his hometown of Nazareth is trying to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. That's why I say we have a record of Jesus' teachings in the synagogue that he would read from the Old Testament and he would proclaim himself as the fulfillment. And so as they hear Jesus doing this, their, their questions are, who is, where is he getting this from? Is this not the son of Mary? Is this not his brothers? Are these not his sisters? Behind these questions are these, these questions like, he hadn't been to school. He's not been to seminary. He's not set under a rabbi. He's not been taught by somebody like Gamaliel. This is a carpenter. How can he sit and say these things? Where is this coming from? The, the implication and the accusation behind their question, where is he getting this from, is he is not getting this from God. So guess what that means? There's only one other answer. And in all of this, Mark tells us that they took offense to him. What a different response Jesus receives in his hometown. Great crowds don't follow him. People aren't pressing in just to touch him. No, exactly the opposite. They are, they are offended by him. They take offense at him. This is from the same root word of the word scandalized. They are scandalized by him. Now, what would cause them to be scandalized? Well, remember who they would have been expecting as the Messiah. And it certainly would not have been a carpenter that they had seen grow from infancy through adolescence. They were scandalized. There was deep offense. There was deep contempt. They were angered at Jesus' teaching. But this is exactly what the scriptures said would happen, isn't it? In Romans 9, 30 through 33, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works. But they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
What's happening in Jesus' hometown is the fulfillment of the scriptures where God says, I'm laying in Zion a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Jesus, the cornerstone. He's a stone of stumbling to the Jew. And they're stumbling over him. They're offended by him. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. These who have known him stumble over him. Their familiarity with him leads to their rejection of him. Jesus makes that statement. He does so in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. This would have been a common saying in their day. It's called an aphorism or a cliche. Um, We have basically the same saying today, the same meaning. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, what does it mean for a prophet to be honored? Because Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his family. So what does it mean for a prophet to be honored, right? Because it's, it's, it's weird language. A prophet is not without honor. That means a prophet gets honor everywhere he goes except in his hometown and among his family and his household. So what does it mean to honor a prophet? For a prophet to receive honor, it means that you take the prophet as a messenger of God, right? That's what a prophet is. He's a messenger of God. And so to honor a prophet, you take him exactly as he is, a messenger of God. But Jesus doesn't get that honor in his hometown. These people remain in their unbelief and they do not honor him. Because they're too familiar with him. That's the whole point of Jesus' phrase. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his family. Because they're familiar, so familiar with him, they don't honor him, they don't believe in him as who he really is. Think of this in the terms of a vaccine. Have y'all ever heard the word vaccine before? Just kidding. Vaccine, the talk of vaccine is everywhere. The talk of vaccine is everywhere. Well, how does a vaccine work? A vaccine works by giving you just enough of the virus, whatever it may be, to cause your body to react to it, to build up the antibodies against it so that it can fight it off, right? You get just enough of it. Not so much that it makes you sick, but just enough so your body responds and and you're called inoculated to it, right? That's what they used to call it back in Conrad's days, inoculations. (laughs) Inoculations. 
This is what Jesus has in mind here. That they have been exposed to him just enough to be immune to his word. Their familiarity with him has bred contempt. In verse 5, Mark says, and he could do no mighty works there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed him. Now, I would like to preach a whole sermon on this verse, but I'm not going to. But when we read this, don't read this and think that it, it means that he could not do mighty works there. So don't read this thinking that their lack of faith reduces Jesus' power. It's not that he couldn't do miraculous works there, but it's that he wouldn't do miraculous works there. Jesus had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. His power is his, and his power is not determined by our response. See, there's a whole vein of, of teaching that says... You know, our faith releases God's power in our life. But, like I said, I want to preach a whole, verse, a whole sermon on this. That cannot be true. Now, there's some principles that can apply, but that can't be true across the whole spectrum because the scriptures are pretty clear. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and no one chooses God, but He first chose us. In our unbelief, his power came and led us to faith. But Jesus is here in his hometown, and they don't believe, and they're rejecting him. And so Jesus, he restrains his work there. He restrains his work there. He would not work in them or through them because of their unwillingness to believe, because of their contempt of him. And then verse 6, Mark says, and he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. Did you know that only two times in the New Testament is Jesus said to have marveled at something? Only twice. One is in Luke 7, verse 9. Jesus marvels at a Roman centurion's faith. Where he says, just say the word. And she'll be healed. In Luke 7, 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marvels at his faith. Jesus marvels at his belief. And the only other time is here where Jesus marvels at their unbelief. Why is Jesus marveling at their unbelief? Because think of the privilege that Nazareth has had. They have had the Son of God living amongst them. They've seen Him. They've been exposed to Him. Talk about a privilege. The most privileged people. Yet they reject Him in unbelief. Their familiarity with Him breeds contempt. Of all the people who should have believed, it was them. But this is exactly what was prophesied, isn't it? Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3. 
For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. What a difference a day makes. From crowds and crowds and crowds and crowds in Capernaum to rejection in Nazareth. So what does this mean for us? Three things. First, the warning for ourselves and our children. Familiarity breeds contempt. Moms and dads, listen to me. The fact that we are here for our children is great and it's dangerous. It's great and it's dangerous. It is dangerous if we give our kids just enough Jesus for them to be familiar enough to reject him as Lord. If we give them just enough to inoculate them to the gospel. How do we do this? How do we give our children just enough to inoculate them to the gospel? I... I, I, I've thought of a whole bunch. I'm just going to give you four. The first one is we do it through empty religion. If they see in us just empty religion, it's just enough Jesus to reject him. If they don't see vigorous, real, vibrant life change and only empty religion, It's just enough Jesus to inoculate them. Second, graceless legalism. Graceless legalism. If we reduce the gospel down to a bunch of do's and don'ts, and we don't show our kids the same grace that God has shown us, if we don't model the gospel to them through our lives and our graciousness towards them, why would they want to have anything to do with Jesus? If we're not willing, when we make mistakes, to come to them and to repent, to say, I am sorry, I messed up, I responded in anger, I did these things, would you forgive me? God has, would you? This is what grace is. That's not to say we let our kids get away with anything. We certainly don't. And there are certainly standards that God has called us to live up to. But we do not, we do not want to give our kids a graceless legalism. Third, affectionless worship. Affectionless worship. If being here on a Sunday morning and coming here is just a part of the weekly routine, 
and they don't see in us a passion and the desire to meet with our Savior, to sing to him, to hear from his word, but instead they just see a bunch of affectionless worship, why would they want to have anything to do with that? And then fourthly is just a Sunday morning hypocrisy. Who they see walk through the door is somebody different than they see every other day. Why would they want to have anything to do with that? You see, these people in Nazareth were all too familiar with Jesus. And their familiarity with him bred contempt and they rejected him. They rejected him. Let that be a warning for ourselves and for our children. Secondly, the normal response is rejection. And I believe this is, this is part of the reason why Jesus returns to Nazareth with his disciples. Because what he is about to do is to send them out to preach the gospel. And Jesus... If he, would have, if he would have been in Capernaum where he's the rock star and everybody's pressing in on him and they can't wait to get to him and they just want to touch him and all these miraculous things are happening, then they would have been sitting back thinking, this is amazing, check all this out. And Jesus would have said, all right, now you go and do just like it. And they would have expected to leave and to go out and for the same things to happen. But that is not always the case. So what does Jesus do? He takes them to Nazareth. Come on, follow me. I'm going to show you how it really is. And they got to witness the rejection of Jesus. They got to see him restrain his own powers and abilities. And then Jesus sends them out so they could know what to expect. Because the normal response to the gospel is rejection. Do you know how I know that? Because God said so. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. May this be an encouragement to us. As we are faithful to the Great Commission and we go and share the gospel and proclaim the good news of Jesus and we are rejected, so was Jesus. The world rejected him. Why wouldn't the world reject us? And then lastly, the sin of unbelief is the most serious. So there are a whole lot of people who think themselves a good person because of the things that they have not done. It's the first line to the song. No list of things I have not done. There's a whole lot of people who think I am good because I've got a list of things that I have not done. But it is precisely that that will condemn them the most. What they have not done. You have not believed. 
what we see in Nazareth is the sin of unbelief. And the sin of unbelief is most serious to God. See, we can fool ourselves into thinking, well, I haven't done all of these things. Look at that person and all that they've done. I've not done a quarter of those things. But if you have not believed, it's precisely what you haven't done that will condemn you. We could read and read and read and read about the sin of unbelief. I had loads of choices. I'm going to give you five verses. The seriousness of unbelief. Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Nothing. Unbelief taints everything you do. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. Hebrews 3, 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Unbelief is evil, evil before God. 1 John 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. To remain in unbelief is to call God a liar. Hebrews 11:6 And without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to, to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What does that mean? The opposite is just as true. The negative is just as true as the the positive. Right? Without faith it is impossible to please him. You cannot please God with unbelief. Nothing you can do can please him. Nothing you can do can please him if you don't believe. Romans 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now that's a, that's a rough list of sinners there, isn't it? Detestable, murderers, sexual immoralitors, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, cowards, detestable people. The faithless. The faithless. Those who don't believe. As we come to this text in Mark 6 and we see the unbelief and the rejection of Nazareth. There is for the unbelieving but one application. Believe. Believe. 
Don't remain another moment in your unbelief. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.